0: say that. I have free membership to the Y, so it's all right. Uh, I need to probably go more often. Probably will go more often after these uh, few weeks is going to get passed by. Um, if you're close to um, an offering envelope pocket on the back of one of the seats, you'll see that there's a faith promise card there. And we've left uh, the flags up, um, representing different nations, of course, and I uh, counted out. On our handout that we gave a couple of weeks ago on Mission Sunday, we have 47 different missionaries listed that we give on a monthly basis, and that does not include Save a Life and um, a couple of the soup kitchen here locally, Um, and that does not include Life for Lost and uh, church planting and developing and... Of course, the youth raise money for Speed the Light, but missions is a big thing to us because our world needs Jesus, and the United States needs Jesus. I've never seen the spiritual um, decline in our nation in my lifetime as we are right now. It is very sad, but it's also an opening for God to show himself great. So uh, we just want to encourage you to take one of those and pray about it and see what God lays on your heart. Uh, We kind of determine how we can, if we've got a couple of families, one is uh, in Italy right now that we'd like to pick up. But um, last year, one third of our mission support came out of our general fund to help these missionaries. So we're kind of at a place where we're not really sure we can pick up anymore until we have... kind of narrow all that down between um, uh, what comes in for missions and what we supplement out of our general fund. Aren't you glad that we're so blessed that we can do that? Because really missions should be at the very core of who we are. We want the world to know Jesus. Um, I get almost daily updates from a couple that we support in Israel. And uh, just last uh, night, they're like eight hours ahead of us, they had 40 people in a prayer meeting. I mentioned this in our prayer gathering right before Sunday school that we pray together. That, uh, and there was a lady that came there uh, that, is, that is Jewish, not a believer, but she's searching. And uh, it's amazing the doors that are opening in Israel. Israel, is very, it's a very um, delicate situation there and uh, keep praying for them praying for God's presence to permeate what is going on there. Um, Today, I want to take you to a passage in Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth. Aren't you glad for the crazy people at Corinth? I think it's all right for me to say that because these people were really difficult for Paul, but he loved them and he was correcting them and Thank the Lord we have 1 Corinthians and Second. Can you imagine not having 1 Corinthians 13, the the chapter on love? But he's like sandwiched it between correction in 12 and correction in 14. Then we have 15, chapter 15, about the resurrection, an amazing letter. But in the second letter, uh, in chapter 5, we're going to... Take you to the very last verse of chapter 5, and I don't know if this should uh, give you any sense of relief that I'm only going to be preaching from one verse. <laughs> How about that? So, you may get out of here, okay, but then again, you might can go a long ways with this verse that we're going to read. Um, this is such a difficult verse to translate from the original because when you look at the original and the, lining, the, uh, the way the words are lined out, it's really awkward if you just translate it word for word in the sequence because there's ways that Paul is emphasizing some things here. So I'm going to read this in different translations. If, uh, we're go- there's going to be up on the screen, I think. But uh, I'm going to start with... The good old authorized version. How's that? Anybody still read the King James? Yeah, look at that. Turn around, Brad. I want you to see all those people. (laughs) there. But I'm not going to leave you out. We're going to read it from the ESV, okay? Come on. I'm going to appeal to the older people and to the younger people. Here it is in the King James. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is a powerful statement. Here it is in the ESV. For our sake, it's not really a good translation right there because that word's not even in there, sake, but you can say it's for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Still a great truth that we've just read. Here's the NIV. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And we just can't go through this without having Eugene Peterson help us out here. The message. How? Question mark. You ask. In Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. I struggle to give, this, uh, give a title to this message. First thing that came up was The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. And I thought about that. Well, that's, the, that's not enough. So I added, this is the first time I've had three titles to one message. A costly salvation. We'll get to that, and the ultimate gift. And I don't know if if uh, you can read this and listen to it. I'm sure that we can't really grasp the magnitude of what Paul wrote there. It has amazing depth to it, and I don't even know if I can do this. I was telling Brenda last night. I said. I I'm so excited about this message, but I don't even know if I can do it justice. I don't even know if I can do the scripture justice, but I'm gonna try. This declaration of God's redemptive work through his son, Paul is saying something so profound in one sentence. We're gonna deal with three dynamics in this verse in just a moment. But I don't wanna give you, you know, sometimes people In our world, just dismiss the reality of God, and and it's just like they they just don't believe there is a God. You might have heard this story recently. A very well known USA women's soccer player on um, Saturday, I think November the 11th, was playing in her last competitive soccer game before she retired. And six minutes into that meet, she suffered one of the most painful and uh, just a difficult injury to heal up from. She blew an Achilles tendon in one of her legs. And in her press conference, I'm going to quote her. I'm going to read it word for word. She said this in the press conference. I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God like this is proof there isn't. So in other words, if God did exist, he is supposed to make sure that in her last soccer game, she should not have an injury. And think about that. Think about how people put God in a place to where she said herself she's not a religious person, But yet she felt that her injury was so much of a proof that he doesn't exist. And I want to tell you something. The good news for her is that Jesus died on the cross for her. Jesus died so that she can have eternal life. And somewhere along the path, I hope she has a revelation of Jesus. Because that didn't offend him at all. Because he's already died for all the sins of the world. He died for all the people who say they're atheists. And really, it's like my son asked me one time about these people when he was on University of Alabama's campus. And he was in Chi Alpha. And they would go off to another campus. And he would come back. And he said, all these people, all these college students on campus that are atheists. He said, Daddy, why are they so mad that God doesn't exist? (laughs) He said, I just don't get it. They're out there yelling at us that he doesn't exist. If he doesn't exist, then what's the deal? I think deep down in the heart of people, even C.S. Lewis, when he was an atheist, really, he was angry at God. And he was like, this is how I get back at him. I'm just going to say you don't exist. And yet God did something so profound, and Paul writes this, He describes the redemptive work of God for people like that soccer player and anyone else who drops all kind of vulgarity in saying there's no God. All of that kind of affronts us, but it doesn't affront him because he died for them. He died for them. As much as Saul of Tarsus was doing his best to wreck Christianity, Jesus still pursued that man. Revealed himself to him. And here he is writing this profound statement. So out of all of the translations and the message, I decided to pick one of them. The King James. The King James. All of them are good, but I want you to hear it again. For he had made him, made Jesus, to be sin for us. Think about that. Who knew no sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And there's three declarations here, if you want to jot them down, and I'm going to try to cover them this morning, that Jesus is sinless. He is declared as without sin, He is sinless from conception, all the way through his life, all the way to the cross. He never commits a sin. He is sinless, but he's also our substitute that is placed, all the sin is placed on him. Even though he is sinless in himself, he becomes our substitute. The imputation of sin upon Jesus is a reality. And the last is this, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hold on to your shouting. And nobody starts running the aisles. But maybe when you get home, you'll think about this and you'll run through the house <laughs> saying, what a profound thought. The sinless substitute. He knew no sin. In fact, the early words in the original order is that he did not know sin and knowing gnoscō having an experience with sin. He never experienced sin any sin. Sin never laid a hand on him. Sin never touched his life. From his conception, which we'll celebrate in another month or so, right, his arrival on this earth, from that conception, it was sinless. He was sinless. When he was tempted in the wilderness, was that a true temptation? Was that a real temptation? Indeed, it was. He was a mortal man, a sinless mortal man, but he had everything that we deal with, hunger, thirst. He even said, I thirst from the cross. He had all of these experiences of humanity as truly human, but without sin. Think about that. Sinless in every way. The immaculate conception, Mary conceiving Jesus as a virgin woman, in her womb, C.S. Lewis kind of makes a note of this, that he came into Mary's womb and he was born and he was raised and he was he raised to a certain height, a certain color of hair, a certain color of eyes. He was totally man. But looking back when he was a child, a young person, even as a fetus within her womb, he was sinless. The Son of God descended from eternity inside of a woman's womb. And the reality is this, sin never touched that conception because he was never linked with Adam. There was no trace of Adam in that conception. It is mind-boggling how the eternal Son of God descended into a fetus environment, a conscious-less environment. And everything about his life growing up was a sense of growing as a mortal in as a human being, but also becoming aware of who he is at different times. I think it's really God's choice to pick one moment out of his upbringing when he was 12 years of age and he was, he, I don't know if he, I think he intentionally just hit Stayed in Jerusalem, but he already knew who he was. He submitted himself to his parents. We already knew he was asking questions. It didn't just come to him because he's the son of God. It just didn't happen to him. He had to go through all of the learning, the reading, everything, all the skill sets, and yet he was without sin. Sin of Adam did not touch him as a child, didn't touch him as a young person. I think it's amazing that he lived 30 years before he did any ministry. 30 years. You think about, you think about, we would never plan it that way. We would have planned it that when he turned 12, it's on. He's a child preacher. There's been child preachers before, evangelists. But we think, well, when he turns 21, he's going to be, Catapulted in the ministry because we got—he's got an important mission. He spends thirty years waiting. Think about that, waiting for the purpose of God to be fulfilled in his life. He did everything he was supposed to do in getting ready for that. All of the relationships he had, he never once stepped across the line. He never did anything wrong. Isn't that amazing? He is sinless. He was tempted, but he never gave way to temptation. You know, um, this is probably why he stayed away from Jerusalem. He stayed away from there because he, he didn't want to mingle with those people. He went out to where the people were who were hungry and thirsty for righteousness. But I tell you this the people in Jerusalem knew about him, and they were nervous about him because they heard all the crowds that went out to hear him preach. He was out there preaching. Again, we're looking at a single verse this morning. Here's the second note. He was made sin for us. He was sinless. So what does it mean that he was made sin for us? What does that mean? That he became sin for us. He was sinless. Well, what does that mean? Keep in mind that Jesus knew no sin, yet he was made sin for us. God made Jesus sin for us. This is a profound statement. In fact, he was living out a purpose for the Father so that he would become the Passover lamb. And not just the Passover lamb. You know, there's there's two festivals that kind of brought into a combination for Jesus. And, and the, the Passover, he was that lamb, but he's also the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, where two goats were involved, and one was a sacrificed animal. The blood was taken as an atoning sacrifice, but the priest would lay hands on the other goat, and someone would lead him outside of the community, so far away that that goat could never make its way back. Two different dynamics of salvation represented that, and Jesus fulfilled that. He was the one who was hands laid over him, and the sin was spoken over him, and that he would wait, have the full weight of sin upon his life, and he had to be taken outside of the city of Jerusalem to do that work hanging on a cross. In shame, he was the sin sacrifice taken out of the city. I don't know if we could really comprehend all of that. We say it, we read it, we we sing about it. But here's a son bearing his own life as a sacrifice for all sin. And God made him. Listen, God made him to be sin for us. God, the Father, made him to be sin for us. What does that mean? God was going to treat him as though he was guilty of all that sin. Not that he was. We know he is sinless. But God took the judgment of all sin. And I going to tell you, when you get home, you ought to think about that because you might have your own shouting experience. That he took all of the sin And it was on Jesus. And and it's kind of like more than just sin bearing. God treated him as though he was a sinner, which he he wasn't. But he bore the consequence as if he was. This is such a unique thing. The weight of sin that was on him. I think the gathers saying it's no wonder that he stumbled when he walked up Calvary's road. The weight that was upon him. Not the cross, but the weight of sin that was upon him. You know, and here we are. The whole idea of sin, I don't know what's going on, but I think we've come to a place where we evaluate our lives by evaluating ourselves with other people. Well, I'm not as bad as him. I'm not doing as bad as he is, so I'm, I'm not too bad off. And here we are in a comparison mode. Can, can you realize that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin and that all of that sin was laid upon it, all the sin of the whole world? We listened to the genocide of October 7th. Do you realize that Jesus bore the sin of all of that? All of the, the Holocaust, all, all of the atrocities you talking about one of the biggest, darkest plagues that's hit our country is sex trafficking of children? In the movie that was on not long ago, the reality that children are the objects of sexual abuse, all of that sin, all the sin of the world, everything, he was made sin for all of them to carry that weight. And here's the resulting effect. You know, it really starts with us surrendering to the Father's will and not excusing ourselves because we're not as bad as other people. If sin was that dark and that bad and it was that dark and it was that bad, we ought to have a different view of sin. We're not sinless. We're sinners saved by grace. And we are sinners. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And he didn't say, I was the chief of sinners. He said, I am. He said, I've never been past who I was and is. Everything about us is broken. The only thing that's not broken is the redemptive work of Christ in us. But everything about us, we're flawed. We're sinners saved by grace. We will never cease in any way to not be sinners that are saved by grace. Amen. I thought that was a good point anyway. But here's the last. After all of that, what he did on the cross, who he became, all the suffering, all the pressure, all of the pain of our world was heaped upon him to the point that God the Father left him. Couldn't be there with him for eternity. They had never been separated. Probably from the first strike on his back when they scourged him, he became the atoning sacrifice and the Father Left him. Some say the, the three hours of darkness when he was on the cross was the father. Who knows when the father pulled back away from him? That had never happened. That had never taken place. From eternity past, they were the same father, son, Holy Spirit. But in that moment, that was disrupted. God had to turn away from his only son. For what he became on the cross and what he was doing on the cross, the Father left him. Jesus just wasn't quoting a passage from Psalms when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said it because it, it, it was going on. It was going on right then. The Father was gone. And he was broken. He couldn't fathom not having fellowship with his Father in heaven. It was all disrupted because of our sin. And yet, they did not take his life from him. They did not kill him. In fact, I can say with confidence, they couldn't kill him. When Herod decided he's going to kill all the children two years and under, He couldn't... He would have never succeeded in finding that baby and and laying anything on that child. That child was not going to be harmed. This is why they head out to Egypt, because they fulfilled Scripture. He he wasn't in danger. The parents were told to get out because Herod's looking for him. But Herod didn't have a chance at putting a hand on that child. And when he was hanging on the cross... His death was not in the hands of those people that nailed him there. His death was in the hands of his father. And that's how he finished his time on the cross, by telling his father, into your hands, I trust my spirit. And he dismissed his spirit out of his body into the presence of the father. They didn't kill him. He was brutalized, beaten to a pulp, a bloody mess. The passion of the Christ is probably the closest thing that's ever tried to capture the reality of what he went through, and it's parts of that is parts that I couldn't even watch the brutality that took place. And I don't think Mel Gibson overstated it at all. The reality of what happened there, Jesus was not going to die from all of that. He was going to die when he gave up his spirit to the Father. And we are going to get to that last point. I just got excited again about that. Here's that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Do you feel righteous this morning? How righteous do you feel on a scale of one to 10? It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how you feel. Whether you feel righteous, whether you feel condemned, whether you feel guilty. All of that doesn't really matter. If you take this passage, you ought to say, Hallelujah. Because it doesn't matter. We've been made the righteousness of God in him. It is not our righteousness. It's his righteousness upon us. And we ought to get free of trying to be a perfect person when it's impossible. We ought to live in the righteousness of God that we have in him. Doesn't matter how you feel. Righteous, and and remember this, he said, we have been made the righteousness of God in him, not made righteous, because righteous is an adjective. Righteousness is a state of being. It doesn't qualify us, it defines who we are. We've been made, I know, I don't know, you're not gonna probably get in front of a mirror and say, I've been made the righteousness of God in him. Come on. You can do better than this. But maybe we would do better if we really thought about it. It's not my strain. It's not like, oh, I need to get this, this sin under control. No, you need to surrender to Jesus. If you could do it in your power, he wouldn't have needed to die. If we could conquer our sin, we would not need the, re- the crucifixion and the resurrection. I strain to really try to explain this because it's more profound than my mind. But that's the declaration. And it's not a suggestion. It is a declaration in 2 Corinthians 5.21. How can we not give God our souls, our lives, our very being? Why do we wrestle with what we want as opposed to what He wants? We ought to be able to say it's done it's over with, I'm tired of battling God's purpose and my purpose and, and sometimes those things collide. We want, it to, we want things to be done this way and God wants it to be done this way and he presses us and presses us and, and the, the, the hardest struggle we have is surrendering our will to him. Giving up our determination to him and say, Lord, what do you want? We can't be our own worst critic. In fact, I, I think probably we are our own worst critic. But as the praise team comes back up, I just want to... Every, everything before Calvary was looking toward God's plan. Everything before Jesus arrived, everything pointed ahead. Everything. When God killed those animals and took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve, that was a sign That sin was going to cost life. Something was going to pay with its life for God to cover their wrong. And that sacrifice tracked all the way through God's covenant with Abraham, all the way through Israel, all the way through the temple, all through all of the things that they had to do to show that it was God's way of saving them, not their way of saving themselves. Here we are living on this. Aren't you glad you're living on this side of Calvary? This side of an empty tomb? (laughs) We have the book. We have the finished product of God's revelation. This is God's living word. It is powerful. It's alive. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it will heal us. It will correct us. We have everything. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us. He endured the shame. He endured the shame. He knew what was coming, and those who tried to run interference for him, he told Peter, "The devil is in you." I, I guess that's the way he said it. I mean, that probably hurt his feelings when he looked at Peter and said, "Get behind me, Satan." He said, "Why don't you say?" Get behind me, Peter! That Satan is messing with. But he, the Peter didn't understand. He didn't understand that someone who was so powerful did miracles, caused the lame to walk, eyes blinded eyes to see, and Peter just couldn't fathom. No, that can't happen to you. You're you're supposed to be our leader. You're supposed to be our victor. And yet Jesus wouldn't let any idea pop up that would diminish his. His purpose, and his purpose was to lay down his life for us. Would you stand with me? He endured the same. He suffered for our crime, for all the atrocities, for all the sin, so that we could have eternal life. Lord, I pray that today we give ourselves to you. We give our lives to you. We lay our lives at your feet. For you are worthy. You are deserving of our souls, our minds, our energy. Forgive us, Lord, for hanging on to stuff that we know that's wrong. When you endured the cross to give us liberty and freedom. And I pray for those here in this room that battle something in their lives. It just seems like they can't get past it. But your power is able to set the captive free today. And this is really a deceit that has come to us to make us think we can't get over this. We can't get beyond this. This will be a ball and chain we drag through life. But you have broken that power. You have broken sin's power. And I pray this morning for those who struggle with certain sin. We will never be without sin, but we can't not hold on to things we know that's wrong. And I pray this morning that you would stir hearts in this room, me included, to say, Lord, I don't want anything holding me back. I want everything that you have for me. I want everything that you've brought for me out of your resurrection. Freedom, hope, liberty, healing, peace. So many in our world troubled by their lives, Lord. Troubled by family issues, financial issues. I pray this morning that in this room We're able to come and lay this at your feet. And if you have something this morning to come and just lay, a worry, a fear, this major battle that you're in right now to come and just stand here and say, Lord, I lay it at your feet. You were made sin for me, even though you didn't know sin, but you've also made me the righteousness of God in you. righteousness of God in see you in a different way hear your voice surrender ourselves to you for fathers in this room for moms that are in this room that, that face a lot of battles and struggles raising children raising sons and daughters Lord having grandchildren that they're praying for Lord that they would see your purpose birthed in every member of their family That the family circle not be broken. That sons and daughters will belong to you and grandsons and granddaughters will belong to you, Lord. Life is too short for us to miss the purpose of your coming. Help us to be more focused. May this passage of scripture be embedded into our souls. That you're fighting for us. You're not fighting against us. You're fighting for us always have fought for us. May we carry that through the rest of this week and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God
1: bless you.